Hey, welcome guys. Um, good to see you. And uh, you're still here, so that means you want to learn more about how to read and interpret scripture. So um, I hope you're hanging in there. We're working through a, a big book. And hopefully the, the pace we've dialed in is good for you guys. How many are, are doing the assignments, or at least trying to do the assignments every week? Okay. Just a reminder, you are welcome to turn those in. Trying. trying. That's okay. Ron, that's okay. Well, we'll take, we'll take effort. Um, if you want to turn those in, I will grade those so that you have some feedback on how you're doing. And, of course, you know, we don't kick you out of the church if you flunk the class or anything like that. Uh, but, you know, feedback is part of how you learn. So if that's helpful, uh, feel free to turn that in. Brianna is the only one that has to turn things in because she's doing this for school credit. And I might say she's doing an excellent job so far on those assignments. So anyway, so uh, let me pray and uh, we'll um, we'll jump into it here, okay? Uh, Father, thank you for the chance to open your word together and, and to know you more and to learn uh, of your ways, and uh, the focus of this class, of course, is is learning how to better read your word and interpret it and understand it. And we uh, we pray, Lord, tonight that you'll give us all wisdom and insight, and um, that we might grow closer to you as we come to better understand uh, the book that you inspired and gave to us. And Lord, we often thank you for your word, but we just want to repeat our gratefulness to you uh, to have a navigational aid in life, uh, to have a record of your faithfulness and your character and, and to recognize that um, revealing yourself to us in such a unique and personal way is a great reminder that you love us and that you care about us and, and desire a relationship. So we, we don't take these things for granted even though we have multiple Bibles at our disposal. Uh, Lord, make us truly to be men and women of one book and uh, we'll give you glory. Uh, guide us tonight now in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so um, David Gibson's not here tonight, but um, first of all, I uh, want to remind you, those of you who just came in, that because of the tech issues we had last week, we're going to give David a whole nother class period next Monday night. And so he'll have a chance to come in. I know he had a lot on his PowerPoint to do, and uh, we appreciate him uh, adapting uh, given the, the tech difficulty we had. But uh, anyway, so we want to give him a whole other shot so that he can unfold that material for you. And um, so next week we'll do that. If you're just coming in, there's two sets of notes in the back. One is the class notes. That's the one with the staple, lesson five. And then the other one is a single sheet that is the syllabus. At the very bottom, it should say revision two. And what I've done is I've updated your assignments and the schedule in light of the fact that we're going to have David come back and redo reading Old Testament narrative. Okay, but before we get into all that, uh, what did you learn last week about narrative? Let's just review, and we, we won't talk about your assignment, because we're going to give you another week to do that, but what would you learn? Read the story. Read the story. And then read it again. Uh, we, we were, um, I, I, I almost am afraid to ask this. How many of you are Princess Bride fans? Princess Bride. Okay. Um, I admit the first time I saw that movie, I thought it was stupid. And I never wanted to watch it again. And then I met a girl. And guys, you'll do crazy things when you meet the right girl. Okay. 
And um, and this girl, as I got to know her and her family, they would they would say the oddest things in the middle of normal conversation. Like, they, they, yeah, have fun storming the castle. You know, have you heard of Plato, Aristotle, Socrates? Yeah, morons. And be like, where'd that come? What does that even mean? And and come to find out that, that the Boyds, uh, 23.7% of their everyday conversation comes from movie lines. <laughs> and so my only hope of getting to know this girl, let alone to m- marry her and run off with her, uh, was I had to become conversant in this movie. So I, I I'm going to date myself here, rented the movie. And um, I couldn't just get them on Amazon in those days and uh, watched it over and over and over until I could actually communicate with the family. And um, but, but, you know, as you watch a movie over and over and over again, whether it's Princess Bride or Lord of the Rings or Star Wars, you know, whatever your th- Pride and Prejudice for you Jane Austen fans, whatever it is, you start to see things that you didn't see the first time. And, and, and even I appreciated Princess Bride you know, the, the, the 19th time that I watched it, you know, it's like, you know, this isn't so bad. It's actually kind of funny. And now you really, okay. So that, that's the point. Any literature, movie, book, the more you become familiar with it, the more you're going to see things and connections and appreciate it more. And the problem is we don't treat the Bible like that. We, we treat the Bible like I'm, my Bible reading plan says I'm going to read one chapter a day. So I read one chapter. I try to get something out of it. And sometimes, you know, that we're successful. Sometimes we're not. But, and then, and then we move on with life. And that's just, you know, you, you don't bring up a movie, watch five minutes of a scene, and then go on with your day, and then the next day watch five more minutes, okay? Not, not that there isn't a place for reading a Bible chapter at a time, but just you're not going to get a sense of what the whole story is about by just doing that. Uh, so, so David's right. We have to read it and reread it and reread it. So what else did you learn last time? Okay, and I wasn't here, so tell, so tell me what that means. Camouflage PT boat. Okay, well, he's going to come back and do it again next week, so. Okay, things that appear different than what they really were. So let, let's do that. How many were in church Sunday, uh, just yesterday? Okay. I want you to tell me what the book of Mark is about. What's the book of Mark about? The gospel of Jesus Christ. What's that? The story of his life. And, and Mark, if you were paying attention, Mark organizes his material... around four major sections, right? Section one is just an introduction. And David focused mainly on section two and section three. And um, where are my markers? Someone stole my markers again. Zippy, can you check and see if there's some pens over there, please? Big, it's a big brown box of dry erase pens. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so what, what was what was part two? Remember, he, he first of all he read the whole section from here to here. We didn't at the very the very last section is the actual events of the triumphal entry, the crucifixion, resurrection. But most of Jesus' ministry that Mark focuses on is under number two and number three. Number two is story after story, incident after incident, uh, event after event, all designed to reveal who Jesus as. 
the Messiah, God's son, right? This first section is, is who is Jesus, right? He heals people from diseases. He does miracles. He calms the sea. And at the very end of that section, if you have Mark open there, at the very end of that first section, which is designed to help us to know who is Jesus, thank you, sir. At the very end of that section, you get to Mark chapter 8, and in verse 27, Jesus turns to his disciples and says what? Who do people say that I am? And you've had eight chapters of story and history and events all designed to show you and I as the readers who is Jesus. And so at the very end, Jesus voices and, and, and uh, uh, Mark puts it there to make clear that that's what the first several chapters were about. Who is Jesus? So he looks at his disciples and says, who am I? Who do people say that I am? Well, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah. Well, who do you say? And Peter says what? You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. See, they get it, right? They get it. So this is who is Jesus. Okay. What's, what's the second section about? Or I guess it's the third section, actually, but the, the, the main section that David talked about on Sunday asks a second question. Who Jesus is, that's the first part. What's the second question? What, what is he going to do? Why did he come, right? And so we get that from uh, Mark chapter 9 all the way through uh, really the end of Mark chapter 10. And that's where Jesus starts telling us and telling his disciples, why did he come, right? Remember, David said up until that time, the book of Mark, Jesus has not said anything about his death or resurrection. But now, between the end of Mark 8 and the beginning of the end of Mark 10, he's answering the question, why did he come? And the events that happened between those two chapters, Jesus is starting to talk about that, right? And at the very end of it, Jesus says, okay, here's why the Son of Man has to die and rise again. And what do the disciples do? We got a question for you, Jesus. And Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? And what do they say? Yeah, when you come into your kingdom, we want to sit on your right and your left. Which means what? The disciples missed the reason why Jesus came. He didn't come to pick his favorites to sit on his right and his left, did he? And then what story comes after that and concludes the section? The blind man. Why does Mark put the story of the blind man right there? Because it, the, the physical miracle of helping a blind man to see illustrates the blindness of the disciples and the people and their need to see the reason why Jesus is here, which is why Jesus says the exact same question to the blind man. What do you want me to do for you? Does that make sense? And that's what the book, the book of Mark hinges around those two questions. Who do men say that I am and what do you want me to do for you? And so the grander themes of the book of Mark are who is Jesus and why did he come? Did you see how that fits? And, and I thought David did just a really good job uh, in a little less than an hour of trying to pull all that together. So that's what you're looking for in narrative. You're not getting caught up in the details. The details are there to serve the broader picture of the main themes there.
Okay, and, and if you if you missed that on Sunday, there's a really good outline that he gave. You can get it on the website. You can pull it out of your Bible from yesterday and review that. Okay. Now David's going to come back and talk to us more about narrative, but tonight we're going to uh, jump in and talk about literary context tonight. Before we do that, let's just remember what are we doing. Um, there are lots of approaches to scripture study. And uh, the, guys, the, the point here is, is not to say this is the only method, right? There are lots of good methods you can employ, assuming that you're using good interpretive practice to get to what does the Bible mean, right? Uh, the grasping, God word, God, grasping God's word uses this picture as the method, not because it's the only method or it's the perfect method, but because it, it helps us remember what is it we're trying to do. Okay, uh, number one there, we see two towns separated by a river. There's a principalizing bridge and the river is made up of culture, language, time and situation. What are we supposed to get out of that? From that picture, we're supposed to remember what? Number one reminds us that what? That's right. Step one is we're trying to figure out what did the book mean, what did the message mean to the original audio uh, audience. We're asking the question, what was the authorial intent? What did the author mean? This is how we read the Bible. It's not how it makes you feel. It's not what I think it means, right? You, maybe some of you have been to a Bible study where it's like, what does it mean to you, Dave? What does it mean to you, CC? What does it mean to you, Karen? And, and we kind of go around the room and we, we sort of pull our emotional ignorance in that, right? We don't want to do that. We want to know what did the author mean to the audience that he originally wrote to. And that's, that's grasping the text in their town. Then secondly, we look at that river, that symbolic river of culture, language, time, situation. And then we ask the question, okay, so what were the differences between the original audience and us? Cultural differences, language differences, history differences. And that helps us to ensure that we're understanding what the author meant and how we might um, begin to think about differences and similarities between our our town, so to speak, and their town. And that's why we have to look at grammar and language. That's why we have to do historic studies. That's why we occasionally look up, look up words in Hebrew and Greek to make sure we're understanding what they mean and, and we want to understand something about the cultural background of the original audience. Step three is we want to cross the principalizing bridge. Once we've understood what the, audi- what the author meant to the audience and we understand the, the differences of that time and culture, then we can take the message, right? The, the actual message, the theology, the principle, the point of the story, the theme, and we can bring it over into our contemporary culture so that we can now start thinking about applying it in our situation. Um, and then... Step four is we want to make sure, having done that, that we, we didn't end up in some sort of you know, bad teaching or false teaching. So we, we, uh, before we apply the Bible, we want to check what's called um, the analogy of faith, or sometimes we call it Scripture interpret Scripture, meaning we want to make sure that what we concluded from one particular text fits with the whole message of the Bible. So we, we double-check it there. And then finally, uh, we want to then apply it, right? How should we apply what we're thinking about, what we've learned? How do we apply those things today? Okay, so that's overall the method. And we've talked about several of these steps along the way. We've talked about uh, um, uh, grammar and syntax and culture and history and uh, observing the text and whatnot. And uh, so tonight we want to talk about the literary context, okay? 
literary context. What what is the literary context? There's a a, a note there, uh, a definition in your notes that comes from the Grasping God's Word book. So let me just read you the definition that they give here. The literary context relates to the particular form that a passage takes. That's called the literary genre. That's how you say that name, genre. And to the words, sentences, and paragraphs that surround the passage that you are studying, the surrounding context. Okay, So that's what we're going to look at tonight, the literary context that has to do with the genre, the type of literature, as well as the surrounding context. Now, now, why do we say context, context, context? Right? Dave and Cece uh, preach that in their in their precept studies. Right? Context, 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 and context rules. Right? Now, when we think about context, we have to think of what we call the the circles of context. So one of my professors called these the circles of context. This is a picture from your Grasping God's Word book. So, what do we mean? So, let's stay. Let's say we're studying a passage, John 3.16, and it's right here. Okay? What, what would the immediate context of John 3.16 be? Nicodemus. Okay, so maybe John 3 and the, uh, the Nicodemus narrative, right? That's where we find John 3.16. And then what, what's the larger section there going on in John 3 with Nicodemus? Ah, we don't know. So maybe we'd want to start at the beginning of the book, start reading in chapter 1, and uh, and work toward chapter 3 and see how does the encounter with Nicodemus fit into that initial couple of chapters, right? Just like David Gibson showed us how those two questions in Mark 8 and Mark 10 fit into the overall argument of the book. And then we'd step back even a step further and say, well, how does John 3.16 fit into the whole context of the book of John? Right, we want to read uh, all uh, what twenty one verse twenty one chapters, right, and, and read the whole book and, and see how does that fit into all of that, and then we ask even a broader question: How does John three sixteen fit into the message of the whole Bible? Uh, we were talking to the um, we're doing actually we're doing the Gospel of Mark with uh, our Awana students on Wednesday night, third or sixth grade, and one of the things I'm trying to help them to see because we did Genesis last year is how do some of the things that the Bible talks about in Genesis fit with what's going on in Mark? You know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son didn't start in John, did it? It started way, way back in Genesis 3 when God made a, a, a prophecy, really, that one day the seed of the woman would come and crush the head of the serpent. And then that gets played out in the covenant with Abraham, and that gets illustrated through the prophets and, and some of the things that we learn about the Messiah. So, so we're connecting that. And you say, man, Pastor Keith, that, that sounds like a lot of work. Well, like I said, do you want to do you want to parachute into episode six of Star Wars and just watch five minutes of a scene, or do you want to go back and start with episode one and hear the whole story? Right? What's that? Well, three, three, four, and five, or, or four, five, and six were really one, two, and three for those of us that are old. Yeah, the whole story, right? So these are called the circles of context. So what we don't want to do is just focus with our microscope on John 3.16 or even maybe just the immediate passage there. We, we, we want to understand how that fits in the overall story. And that's particularly important in the narrative portions of Scripture, but it's really important in, in every book. Okay, so, so let's, just, let's just look at some, some uh, uh, examples here, okay? Um, we're going to work through these examples together. 
Okay, so first of all, I want uh, so, someone to identify who says this. May the Lord, where is this found? May the Lord watch between you and me when we are absent one from the other. Where's that in the Bible? I took the references out so you wouldn't cheat. And David, David Gibson said something about not having chapter divisions and verses last week, so I'm, I'm, I'm playing the game here. Any idea where that is? Okay, Dave's getting warmer. Dave's getting warmer. Do you know where I first heard this passage? I was probably younger than Anson on a necklace. Who said that? On a necklace. It, it was the J.C. Penny gift. Ca- you remember when they had a gift catalog, the Christmas catalog? I'm really dating myself now. And it was this, ne- it was this necklace that had two medallions that were kind of cut and they, they fit together. And it had this verse on it. May the Lord watch between you. And the idea was, you know, girls, you understand this? You, you know, so Brianna and Amy, because they're friends, they're going to buy the set. She's going to wear one. And, and God's going to watch over us when we... Okay, well, let's turn in our Bibles to Genesis 31 and let's talk about where that comes from. That literally is where I first heard this verse. Uh, the J.C. Penny Christmas gift catalog. And for the kids in the room here, the JCPenney Christmas catalog was what we looked at before there was Amazon when it came to Christmas lists. So this verse actually comes when Laban is pursuing Jacob after Jacob has decided that 14 years for one woman is long enough to work for a father-in-law. And he's going to leave. And so he leaves at night and, J- and Laban pursues him and overcomes him. You, you probably remember some of the story here. And, um, and so they, they go up and uh, chapter 31, verse 36, Then Jacob became angry and contended with Laban and said, What is my transgression? What is my sin? Right? And um, so they, they, uh, they're, they're, Why have you hotly pursued me? And, and Laban says, You took my gods. And remember, Rachel had taken the gods. And Okay, so th- that's the context. And now we get to our verse. Okay, so look with me at verse 44. And I want you to read and tell me what's the context there. Who wants to take a stab at it? Yeah, you start, you, you start in 44, 40, uh, chapter 31, verse 43, then read down through the end of the chapter, and you should be able to understand it. Okay. Okay. 
Okay, and why did they have to do that? Yeah. Yeah, they're making a covenant so they don't kill each other. <laughs> so they don't keep fighting. They're drawing a line in this. Actually, they made a rock pile, not a line in the sand. And they said, you stay on your side, I'll stay on my side. And we're going to call the place Mitzvah, right? And that's where the name comes from. May the Lord watch between you and me when we were absent from one another. We say, oh, isn't that so nice? No, no, no. That, that's, like, that's like conflict resolution. Like we're going to do this. And look at this. Um, where does it say there? Uh, verse 48. Therefore it was named uh, Mitzvah. And he said, may the Lord watch between you and me when we were absent from one another. Look at verse 15. Look at the very next verse. And if you mistreat my daughters, or if you take wives besides my daughters, although no man is with us, God is a witness between you and me. So mitzpah, the rock pile is like, if you mess with my family, God's going to get you. Ooh, so it's not a cute little friendship medallion, right, that me and my best friend buy. And of course, you understand that there's a covenant history too, right? Between Jacob and, and Esau and, and the families, so... Okay, so, so that's it's context, right? Context? Look at the next example. For where two or three have gathered in my name, I am there in their midst. You might be more familiar with this one. Matthew 18. Where do we typically hear this verse used? At prayer meetings. What's that? At a, at a wedding? Okay. You know, Lord... We thank you that you're in our midst. Your word says wherever two or three are gathered, you're here with us. There's two or three gathered here. So we thank you that you're with God's omnipresent. He's always with you. All right? You don't need, even if you're by yourself, God's there. So, so what, is, what, what does it mean where two or three have gathered in my name? There I am. God's not saying I'm not omniscient unless there's two or three with you. Or, I'm, I'm not omnipresent, excuse me. What does he mean? Let's turn to Matthew 18. And look at the context. It involves church discipline. Okay. So Matthew chapter 18. Let's find it. Yeah, so uh, the context is what we call church discipline, or in our church we call it corrective discipleship, because that's really what it is. Um, uh, and, and you guys are familiar with this, that the section of teaching that this comes from is Matthew eighteen fifteen through 20. And you guys have heard this before. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. If he doesn't listen, take two or three, one or two others, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact is established. If he repents, great. If not, then go tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen to the church, then let him be to you as a Gentile or tax collector, meaning you're, you're, the church is declaring him not a Christian. Verse 18, truly I say, whatever you bind on earth shall be, have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have, have been loosed in heaven. What does that mean in the context of a church discipline situation? Looking at it in context now, hopefully it, it is a little more clear. God is going to back your decision yeah. about what to do. 
Yeah. God's going to back your decision. That's right. Yeah. So the, the binding and loosing there, the, the point is when a church comes together to correct, lovingly correct an erring, sinning member of the church, even to the point that they have to declare them that they're not a Christian. Well, is telling somebody they're not a Christian kind of a big deal? A- absolutely. And we might go, well, what, what confidence can we have that we can do that? I mean, is that even loving? Should we do it? And, and so Jesus says, I want you to know when a church comes together and does this, that that mechanism reflects the will of God in heaven. Whatever is, is bound on earth shall have, have been bound in heaven. Whatever is loosed on earth has been loosed in heaven. Meaning in terms of the decisions of the church toward somebody who's living in sin. And then we get our verse. Again, I say to you that if two, or two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall have been done for them by my Father who is in heaven. That's not like, like if Alan and I get together, my son Alan, and we're like, you know what? Lord, we agree that we need a Lamborghini. We agree. And your word says, uh, if two or more agree that, right? It doesn't work like that. When he's talking about two agreeing, what's the context? It's not buying supercars. It's, it's, it's church discipline. It's making a disciplinary judgment call on somebody who's living in sin and not repentant in the context of the local church. And then, and then here's our verse. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, there I am in their midst. Basically saying the same thing. The church can be confident that when the members of the church come together to pronounce a verdict on a, an unrepentant member saying they're not a believer that they can trust that God is in their midst, meaning God is sanctioning that decision. He's validating that, that process. Does that make sense? Now look at the broader context. Don't just look at the verse now. Look at the chapter. What has Jesus been talking about? He's been talking about the kingdom, right? The lost sheep. Notice this. Um, He talks about the kingdom of God in the beginning of chapter 18. He illustrates it with a child, right? Uh, uh, Illustrating the the purity of, of basic faith alone in Christ alone, right? And then he says, whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me uh, to stumble, it would be better if we, we put a millstone around his neck and threw him in the sea, and then he starts pronouncing woes because of stumbling blocks. What's he saying? You've got to take your sin seriously. Because it causes what? Other people to stumble. That's what church discipline is doing in part. It, it, it helps the person who's sinning, but it's also protecting the rest of the church from being influenced, Right? But not only that, on the front end of the church discipline passage, verses 12 to 14, we have the parable of the lost sheep. And on the other side of the church discipline, uh, we have the parable of the unforgiving servant. And both of those illustrate what concept? Forgiveness and how a shepherd leaves the 99 and goes after... Well, guess what? What is a church doing when there's somebody living in sin... They go, well, you know, everybody sins. We'll just, I don't want to have that awkward conversation. You know, that's not, that's not very loving. No, no, no. What does a church do? 
they go after the sinning person because they care for that person's soul. And so that's what the parable of the, the lost sheep is, is illustrating on a human level. But remember, church discipline is a reflection of God himself, right? That's the two or three are gathered. There I am in their midst. So look at the end of verse 14. So it is not the will of your father who is in heaven that one of these little ones may perish. That's why you need to go and do church discipline so that you're, you're, res- you're rescuing uh, a wayward sheep. And then, uh, as I said, both of them illustrate forgiveness, right? So the, the parable of the, uh, the unforgiving servant illustrates that um, forgiveness um, is, is what we're trying to exercise there. And interestingly enough, that goes into the conversation about divorce, where, where forgiveness and reconciliation is, is um, the main theme going in to think about that. So anyway, we can, we can keep expanding those circles of context with Matthew, but, but that church discipline section comes, you know, it's, it's sandwiched between two sections on forgiveness and loving people enough to go and help them when they're, when they're in trouble. What's that? It does work, yeah. Okay, now I didn't put the reference here. I want to see if you can get this one. You are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant loving kindness and one who relents concerning calamity. Is that pretty good theology? Assuming that person is talking about, well, who's that person talking about? You are a gracious and compassionate God, right? Who is it? It's Jonah. Now, is Jonah saying that? As a compliment, like I'm going to memorize that verse, like it's great theology 101. Yeah, this is Jonah complaining. But you wouldn't know that if you didn't know the story. And uh, your homework assignment this week, your mission, should you choose to accept it, is is you're gonna you're gonna look at the book of Jonah, and you're gonna try to mark the scenes. Right, because narrative is all about, and, and David talked about this last time, marking out the scenes. That helps you to determine what is the context that I'm working in. So when Jonah says that you're a gracious, compassionate God, slow to anger, and abundant loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity, why is he complaining? Because Yeah, and why does Jonah not happy about that? Why does he hate the Ninevites? Yeah, because they were they were horrible in in cultural hate. Yeah, and and remember when Jonah is writing this, the Assyrian Empire runs the world. Judah is this tiny little blip on the radar screen, and the and the Assyrian Empire is wrapped around it for hundreds of miles in every direction. And Judah is the only region that they haven't conquered yet. And uh, I mentioned uh, I think a couple of weeks ago we were talking about Jonah a little bit that um, if you read the history books. There's actually some, when, they've, when they excavated Nineveh and, and dug up the ruins of this empire, they found history books that actually recount what the Assyrian uh, uh, soldiers did to their captives when they took over their, their cities. And it is R-rated. It is horrible. And uh, so, so Jonah has, you know, at least some, some human reason for being angry. But, of course, the, uh, we, we read that and we go, why is he upset that God's gracious and compassionate? Usually we consider that the good news, right? Why was he upset at God, actually angry at God? He's so angry he wanted to die. He kind of has a little hissy fit there a couple of times. Um, why? Because he didn't mind pronouncing 
Uh-huh. Although at first he didn't. Uh-huh. Right. He, he, didn't want, he didn't expect them to repent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he probably didn't expect them to repent. In fact, you remember when he goes out to the desert and he sits under the plant that God makes, it says he went there to watch the city and, he, and he's hoping that his rant has changed God's mind and he's going to see fire come down like Sodom and Gomorrah. That's probably why he's out in the desert. Um, it's all about him. And here's the crazy thing, guys. The, the, the point of, of Jonah, Jonah is unwilling to show grace and mercy to his enemies because he doesn't see that he's just as much in need of grace and mercy from God as the Ninevites. And the whole story is designed with these ironies and contrasts to show you that Jonah, who's supposed to be the prophet of God, doesn't fear God, doesn't care about God, doesn't obey God, and God is merciful and gracious and compassionate and patience over, 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 over again, even sends a fish to rescue him as God's instrument of salvation so he doesn't drown in the Mediterranean Sea. So it reminds you what Jesus says, um, you know, later on in the Gospels that we should be merciful as our Father in heaven has been merciful to us, right? What about this last one? I put the reference there. You probably know this. Job says, in Job 13, verse 15, though he slay me, I will hope in him. What does he mean by that? Well, let's look. Turn in your Bible to the book of Job. When I hear this verse quoted, I hear it quoted as a exemplary demonstration of mature faith. Right? Even if God kills me, even if God makes my life really, really miserable, I'm not going to give up my hope and trust in Him. That's usually how we hear it. And uh, now look at the passage. And uh, I'll resist teaching you the whole book of Job, but, uh, um, but, but read enough of the context to understand. You know, it's usually dangerous to memorize half of a verse. Right? So, so Job here... Uh, is responding, in this case, he's responding to Zophar, one of the three friends, and he says, chapter 13, verse 15, though he slay me, I will have hope in him. And we say, great, he's hanging on to his faith. Even if God's will is to kill him, he's not going to lose his faith. Okay, read the second part of the verse. What does it say? Nevertheless, I will argue my ways before him. Well, that doesn't sound so good. What does he mean by that? He's writing God's wrong. And God, and Job is trying to convince him of that. And then he says in verse 16, and this also will be my salvation. Now, that's a little bit hard to understand if you don't understand what's going on in Job. But let me put it together for you. When he says, though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. Even if God's, God kills me, I'm going to hope that God does what's right. How? Because I'm going to argue my case with him, show him that God's wrong and I'm right, and that's going to be my salvation. Oh, that doesn't sound like a good example to follow. Because it's not. So context, context, context. As CeCe said, context is king. Now, you know this. You don't like to be taken out of context, do you? You know, Roger, when you and Ruth are talking and you say something and she doesn't hear the whole thing and she thinks, you know, you're insulting her when you were actually complimenting her. I mean, that's all that's happened to all of us in life and marriage. And we don't like that. 
Um, you got to hear it in context. Okay, so that gives you some ideas of why context is so important. Now, how do we determine context? We determine context by reading, rereading, and rereading a book over and over and over again. And David talked about the importance of doing that. Even, you know, he, he, how, how long did he read the book of Mark yesterday? It's like most of the sermon, wasn't it? Did it help you to understand the main points, though, just by reading it? Why don't we do that more often? Yeah, time, right? Time. We, we don't all have all the time in the world. But, but the point is, you're not going to get familiar with the Princess Bride by watching three minutes of a scene once a week. You've got to watch it over and over and over. And you may have to break it up. You may not have time to go through the whole thing, but, but that should be your goal, right? So you're going to read it, reread it, and reread it. And as you do, the second thing you're going to do is you want to orient your book within the larger context of Scripture. Uh, what do I mean by that? This is, how many of you have seen this before? The, 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 the arc of biblical history? This is from a book called uh, Max Anders, 30 Days to Understanding the Bible. I came across this book as a brand new Christian when I was in college. I became a Christian in college. I don't remember how or why I got this book, but it was a God wonderful thing that happened because what this book does is it helps you to understand the Bible in 30 days. Convenient, right? But one of the things that it does is it takes this big overwhelming book that's going to take most of us a really long time to, to work through and it divides it up into these sections that help you to see the overall history. So, uh, again, for those of you that, that aren't familiar with this, um, here's how it works. Uh, he has these little pictures that demonstrate each phase of the Bible's history. So we start right here with creation. That's number one. You end here with the, the missionary portion where people are going out and sharing the gospel, right? And within that, there are these, eight, these, these um, eras of history. So the uh, number two here, is the patriarch period. That's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and, and the 12 uh, tribes, right? And then after the, the patriarchs, which take us to the end of Genesis, then we go into Exodus, right? We understand that where the Israelites are in Egypt. There we've got the Egyptian temples there to remind us that's what phase three is about, God's deliverance and the, the mighty hand and outstretched arm. They receive the law, right? Then they go into the promised land, right? They're going to they're gonna take the promised land. That's the conquest. We've got the swords here to remind us they're going to go in and take the land that God promised to give them, right? Well, guess what? They, they quickly fall disobedient, especially after Joshua dies. We'll talk about that in a moment. And so we enter a time where everybody does what's right in his own eyes, and God raises up judges to try to get the people under control. And then they say, well, that's not good enough. We demand a king. God says, you don't need a king. They demand a king. So God relents and gives them a king, and we go into the kingdom era, right? With King Saul as the first king, and then the very last kings, right, in the divided kingdom before one goes into Assyria and one goes into Babylon. That's the exile, right? The people of God are taken into captivity. Then they come back from captivity. They rebuild the walls. They rebuild the um, the temple. That's, that's Zerubbabel, right? That's Ezra. That's Nehemiah who build, rebuilds the walls. They come back. And then the Bible ends. The Old Testament ends. And there's 400 silent years between the end of Malachi and the beginning of the Gospels. Broken, the silence is broken by who? John the Baptist, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, right? And then we get the Gospels. Then the, the church starts in the book of Acts, leads us into the mission era. 
We, we could add, you know, consummation and revelation there if we wanted to. But, but you see, so when, when, when you're in your Bible reading plan and you're in 1 Samuel, and you go, who's Samuel? Why is he first? Um, and you go, wait, okay, Samuel was the last, what? He was the last judge. And Samuel ushers in what transition in the Bible, according here? The kingdom era, right? He's the one that goes and commissions Saul. King Saul is the first king. So we know that Samuel is going to happen right in this area here. So knowing something about judges and the kingdom helps us to have context for what you're reading about in Samuel. And uh, uh, I recommend this book because not only is it going to give you history and dates, and and what he does is he goes through and gives you a little, little summary for each one of these eras of history and who the main characters are and the dates that it happened and some of the passages you want to pay attention to. Then he does a whole thing on geography. I failed geography. Uh, I, I have a brother who's two years younger than me, and he's like a geography god. He, when, he, when he got his first apartment, he went out to um, Bed Bath & Beyond and bought a shower curtain that has an atlas of the world on it. I kid you not. So, so when you're in the restroom, doing what you do in the restroom... Uh, getting ready in the morning, you know, he'd, he'd look at the thing and he just beats up geography, you know, and, you know, I have trouble finding Toller on my way home every day, you know, so, um, anyway, right, so, so there's a whole section on geography and knowing bodies of water and, 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 and then, then they say when, when they left, uh, you know, this area and they went to Canaan or they went to Assyria, you, you know what's going on. So great book, you need to get that. But for our purposes, this just helps us give a broader context of where our book resides. So, Get a, get a resource like that and put it in the context. Now, beyond that, you want to ask a third question. How is the book divided up into sections, paragraphs, arguments, or scenes? And David Gibson started on this. We've been focusing on narrative. I want to do a couple of other examples right now to show you how to do this with different genres or different types of books, okay? So I want to show you how to do this with a letter like Ephesians, okay? So can we do that? Let's look at how we would go about determining the context in a different type of book like the book of Ephesians, a letter. So let's turn over there. Now, what's the first, if you're going to size up Ephesians, what's the first thing you're going to do? Maybe read it. How many chapters are in Ephesians? Six. How long would it take you to read six chapters? Ten minutes, 15 minutes, those of us are slow, maybe 20 minutes. Could you spare 20 minutes to read the book of Ephesians every day? You spend more than 20 minutes checking Facebook. You spend more than 20 minutes watching Cowboys reruns or A&M reruns from that incredible win against Alabama over the weekend. Watching Prince's Bride. See, there you go. (laughs) I am not left-handed. Know something you don't know. Um, Anyway, so... um, so that's what you do. You read it and read it and read it. You might want to, uh, in light of what we talked about a couple weeks ago with history and background, what else might you want to do with Ephesians? Crack open your MacArthur Study Bible. Read the introduction. Yeah, read the introduction. And not, not, we're not getting into interpretive issues. That, come, that comes later on. But initially, well, who's Paul and why is he writing and, and who's he writing to and what's, the, what's going on culturally? And remember that river? We've got to bridge the river, right? And so a, a Bible study Bible will help you to, to learn some of that, right? 
uh, you're going to learn something like, uh, you know, the, the book of Ephesians was probably not written exclusively to the Ephesians. Did you know that? It was a circular letter. The original letter didn't have the word Ephesians in it. It went to Ephesus probably first, and then it made, it was passed on from churches to churches to churches in that area of Asia, and at some point, a scribe probably wrote in the word Ephesus because that was one of the stops there, but the original manuscripts, or not the original manuscripts, but the earliest manuscripts for Ephesus do not have to the saints who are at Ephesus there. Okay, it's just to the saints. So you learn stuff like that, right? Uh, okay, so, so let's, so we're reading Ephesus, uh, Ephesus. We're reading Ephesians. And we're reading and, and we're, we're learning about doctrine and God and His plan of salvation and we're working our way through this. And one of the things you're going to notice as you're reading, and this goes back to something that Lee was teaching a few weeks ago on, on grammar and whatnot, uh, you need to pay attention to that grammar stuff because as you're reading the first three chapters, Paul's not going to say a whole lot about what we need to do. Those of you that know Ephesians, what's the, what are the first three chapters really about? Yeah, who we are in Christ, what Christ did and, and how he died on the cross and how we can be uh, made right with him by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone and how uh, God had this plan to bring the Gentiles in to that plan in chapter 3, right? Um, so there's a lot of what we call indicatives. God, uh, Paul is saying things that are true. Here's what Jesus did. Here's how he died. And, yeah, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Chapter 2, verse 1, right? And so you're reading about the, God's plan of salvation. And then we get to chapter 4. And you'll notice at the end of chapter 3, there's a little bit of a doxology. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. And then we get to chapter 4, verse 1. And what's the first word? Which should make you say What? What's the therefore, therefore? And what, what, did, what did we label that type of word a couple weeks ago? It's a transition, right? It's a transition. And what does he say after that? Therefore, what's the next thing say? I, the prisoner of the Lord. What's that? Implore you to... Walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. And that sounds like a, a command. And we go, we haven't seen many of those thus far. And so between the word therefore and the fact that now he's starting to give commands, and by the way, he's going to give a whole lot of commands in 4, 5, and 6. If you're reading the book and you're noting that, you're, you're picking up on, man, there's a bunch, remember Lee was talking about how we identify a command from a statement, right? And we go, okay, this is a different section. He's moved from what Jesus has done for us to how we should respond. And that becomes the sort of hinge of the book, right? And, and you can break it down even more, but just by reading it, you're going to pick up on the fact that Ephesians is basically divided into two sections. There's an indicative part. It tells us the facts of the gospel and what Jesus did and and how people can be made right with him. And then there's a response to that gospel. And you'll notice he doesn't just say walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you've been called. Then he's going to explain all the ways you need to do that. He's going to talk about how that happens in using your spiritual gifts in the church. He's going to talk to the pastors and teachers that they would equip the saints. And the saints are going to do the work of the ministry. 
walking in a manner worthy of the calling which they've been called. And they're going to speak the truth in love so that the whole body grows in unity and maturity. That's chapter 4. And then at the end of chapter 4, he's going to get really specific. Here's how you talk to one another. Here's how you relate to one another. The interpersonal part of walking in a manner worthy of calling which he's been called, right? And then he gets into chapter 5. He's going to start getting in our kitchen even more. He's going to talk about personal purity and holiness. He's going to talk about our words and making most of our time and not getting drunk all as a means of Walking in a manner worthy of the calling which you've been called. Then he's going to get really, really personal. And he's going to say to husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Then he's going to talk to kids. Then he's going to talk to employers. Then he's going to talk about uh, uh, the the spiritual realm. and, and Right? And all of that is walking in a manner worthy of the calling which you've been called in very specific areas of life. And so as you're reading it, you see that division, okay? I'm preaching to you. I'm sorry. I'll calm down here. But but that but that's what you're supposed to see as you read these things over and over and over again. Let's do a harder one. Let's do Proverbs. How on earth do you divide Proverbs? Any thoughts? Okay, you could go topical. And that's typically how the book is studied. And, and you know what? That, that's a very logical way to do it. There, there's nothing wrong with that. I, I've taught it like that and, and have benefited from it. Does Proverbs have a context? Oh, wisdom is a theme, right? Does Proverbs have a context? It, let me ask it like this. Whoever put Proverbs together as a book, was there an intentionality in how that book was put together? Okay, it's advice from a father to a son. Okay. How to live. Relationships. Okay, those are all themes, right? And, and, and a father to a son, that, that's, that's the, the, the initial thought here. Look, can I show you? Proverbs has more of a context than you realize. And I had to study this book I'd never preached through the book of Proverbs, and I worked through it several years ago in Sunday school, and I saw it really for the first time. There's more intentionality in how it's put together than you might realize. Well, let me show you. Now, if, you, if you're reading the Proverbs as a book, you're going to see this. If you're reading one chapter of Proverbs a day, which I love to do, that's really good, but you might, you might miss how all those chapters are connected if that's the only way you read it. Okay, so, so look at chapter 1, verse 1. I'd love for one of you to read, because... You know, I'm talking too much here. Would someone read the the first seven verses of Proverbs chapter one? Nice and loud, please, so the live streamers can hear us. I know the wisdom and instruction to discern the sayings of understanding, to receive instruction in wise behavior, righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the mind, to the youth, knowledge, and discretion. A wise man will hear and increase in learning, and a man of understanding will acquire wise counsel. To understand a proverb and a figure, the words of the wise and the riddle. One more verse, verse 7, please. Yep. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Thank you, Ron. Um, that's the purpose of the book, right there. Solomon tells us here's why I'm writing. And we know that there are some other sages that also participated in in, uh, the book of Proverbs as well, mostly Solomon. 
And that's why he says, I'm writing this to know wisdom and instruction, to discern sayings, instruction. Here's the main idea. Here's the, here's the, the main theme is chapter one, verse seven, right? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise windows and instruction. And the goal, verse five, is that a wise man will hear and increase in learning and a man of understanding will acquire wise counsel. Now, hold your place there. Go to the very end of the book. It starts with the fear of the Lord and a wise man who lives in that and learns in that, right? How does the book end? A wise woman. And what's the, what's the culmination of, of this song of praise for the, the P31, the Proverbs 31 woman? It's in verse 30. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, she will be praised. That didn't happen on accident, guys. That, that's inclusio. That's the bookends, right? We have fear of the Lord at the beginning and fear of the Lord at the end that shows us the theme of the book. We have a wise man at chapter 1, a wise woman at the end. That shows us it's the theme of the book. Do you see that? So there's an intentionality here. And, and not only that, if you go back to chapter 1, it starts, Hear, my son, your father's instruction. Do not forsake your mother's teaching. So dad is talking to his children. What's the wise woman doing at the end of, the, of, of Proverbs 31? Her children rise up and call her blessed because she has shepherded them well. So you've got Solomon doing it in chapter 1. You've got the wise woman being praised for it at the end. So there, it, it's, a, it's a reminder of, of godly parenting and instruction. As, as some of you said, it, it's a father sitting down with his son. It, it's a mom participating in the shepherding of her children. And then, starting in chapter 1, verse 8, there's this ongoing dialogue between Solomon, dad, and his kids, and they talk about all sorts of things until we get to the end of chapter 9. There's a context between chapter 1 and chapter 9 if you read it. It's an ongoing dialogue. And you'll notice this. Solomon repeats himself. He says the same thing. In like every chapter. And I thought, you know what? That's because he was a parent. <laughs> right? Because our kids don't often listen very well and heed the instruction the first time. And I know because I gave my mom, you know, made my mom crazy doing that. And you probably did too. So there's repetition. We know this is written by a parent. And then in chapter 10, notice what happens there. What, 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 what does chapter 10 verse 1 say? Uh, before before you get to that, yeah, before you get there, what does it say? The pro, what, say, why is that there? No, we, we don't. That, that, that's there, there's no argument with that. But why does it start off sudden in chapter ten, verse one, the Proverbs of Solomon? Why is that there? It's a transition. You're supposed to read that and go, why is that there? Oh, maybe it's a transition. And the book is transitioning from an ongoing dialogue, a, a divinely inspired eavesdropping between a father and the son about how spiritual uh, conversation should go in the home. That stops in chapter 10, verse 1. And now we have Solomon giving us his proverbs or his wise sayings. And this is where the book has less context now. There's context between chapter 1 and chapter 9. Then starting in chapter 10, this is more 
not random proverbs, but there's less context. But can I just show you? It's not all without context. Look at some of these. I was reading this one day, doing my Proverbs of the Day thing here. Look at chapter 18. I want to show you how many times chapter 18 talks about your mouth and being careful with it. Okay? These are not random. Look at this. Chapter 18, uh, verse 1. He who quarrels against all sound wisdom, right? Separates himself and seeks his own desire. Quarreling. That's a, that's a verbal thing. It's a thing you do with your mouth. Um, a fool doesn't delight in understanding, but only in revealing his own mind. He's running off his mouth, right? When a wicked man comes, contempt also comes, and with dishonor comes scorn. The words of a man's mouth are deep waters. There's the mouth again. The fountain of wisdom is a bubbling brook. Um, verse 6, a fool's lips, there's mouth again, brings strife. His mouth calls for blows. A fool, fool's mouth is his ruin. His lips are the state of his soul, are the snare of his soul. Uh, verse 8, the words of a whisperer are like dainty mor- Do you see this? It's all about your mouth. That's context. That some, so whoever arranged this, maybe it was Solomon or one of his, his uh, uh, guys, they took all these sayings of Solomon and put them together around the theme of being careful with your mouth. And so as you look at these chapters, often there is a theme. It's not as random as you think. Okay? So again, how are you going to know that? You're going to know that because you're reading and reading and reading and seeing those themes. Okay, so you're going to work, how is the book divided up, paragraphs, and there's nothing wrong, you know, if you want to, you know, most study Bibles are going to outline the book, that's helpful, don't don't take that as divinely inspired, I mean, read the book yourself, Um, but it's okay to to get some hints there if you're totally lost. Uh, Some of these, as I just demonstrated, are genre specific. Ephesians is a letter, it's going to outline a little bit differently. Jonah is a story. It's a, it's a prophetic book, but it's a story. So you're going to outline that differently. Proverbs is Proverbs. That's very different. So you outline that differently. But now as you identify different sections, determine the theme, the, the, the main theme or point. And at this point, it, it may be helpful to write it down. So write down what, as I'm identifying a section, what's the theme? So what would you say is the theme of Proverbs, the book, insofar as we've divided it up, hopefully correctly? What's the theme? It's the fear of the Lord. It starts the book, it ends the book. It starts with a wise man, it ends with a wise woman. Um, And and certainly we would see it in both of those. It's it's the fear of the Lord and it's it's a particular call for parents to talk to their kids about spiritual things, right? And demonstrating that. What's that? Oh yeah, absolutely. And and so within that fear of the Lord, one of the, the... teaching angles that that solomon takes is with his with his kids is he doesn't just say you know you need to obey your mom and you know get to work on time and all that he says son do you see that guy over there yeah dad you know why he's hanging out over there because he's about to make the mistake of his life that mistake that he's gonna you know what it's like it's like when the ox goes to the slaughter as one in uh, a, a bird caught in a snare and he does not know that it will cost him everything Proverbs make sin look ugly and wisdom look beautiful, right? But the, through contrast. That, that's a great way to teach. Okay, so th- there are, there are sub, we would call those a, a sub-theme or a, or a teaching strategy within that main theme, right? And then as you're writing down those themes in the sections, then you want to identify how each section relates 
to the others. And again, writing it down. And if you're in narrative, it's going to look one way. Ephesians is going to look another way. Uh, You guys are going to do Jonah as homework. So uh, I'm going to have you divide up the book of Jonah into the natural scenes. Okay, we'll talk about that. And then you're going to come back next week and tell me, um, having divided that up, what do each of those scenes, how do they connect together to to teach the, the point of the book or the theme of the book? Now, I picked one of my favorite Old Testament characters for our main assignment here. We're going to take the next probably 15 minutes and you're going to do this with Samson. Samson, what a weird story. You think Princess Bride is weird? Samson. Uh, where do we find the book of uh, the, the, the story of Samson? In the book of Judges, okay? So let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Judges. Where does uh, the narrative with Samson start? Does anybody know offhand? Chapter 13. Yeah. How would we do this sort of thing where somebody says, okay, now we're going to look at, if you say we're going to look at the story of Samson, yeah. Well, really, the, the, the idea of having your own copy of any biblical book is only a few hundred years old. So remember, prior to the printing press, prior to, you know, really just a few hundred years ago, the way Christians would learn the Bible is they would gather together and someone would read it or maybe recount it from memory. So, so you, would, you wouldn't study it the way we're studying it. You would do it orally, almost like we would watch a movie and then talk about it later on would be probably more how it happened. But it's a fascinating question, isn't it? It's a good, good question. Okay, so you got Samson, starts in chapter 13, and it concludes at the end of 16. And uh, on your notes there, what I want you to do I want you to read through the book of Samson right now, just kind of skim through it, and you probably can't read it really, really, really slow and detailed uh, right now, but I want you to read through it as best you can, and I want you to identify the sections of the story. Where does it seem like there's a scene change, okay? Ready? And, And go to it. It's a comical book, but you're not allowed to laugh on the funny parts, and a tragic book, too. And as you're reading, those section in your notes is to write down where you think the scene changes are, okay? So as you're reading, if you think you see a scene change, remember geography change, dialogue, um, a major event change, any of those are markers. And then just kind of catalog, write down in your notes where you think those natural breaks are in the story. Drew, do we have live streamers watching? Okay, so for you two at home, this is not a coffee break. Get out your Bible and get to work, okay? All right. Take about five more minutes, finish reading, identify. Again, you don't have time to read in detail. Just kind of skim it and look for those major scene changes. How many many did Cece get? How many did you get? I don't know. Okay. Okay. Yeah, you've got to you got to kind of skim, but yeah. Okay, guys, take one more minute and then we'll trade papers and grade each other. Just kidding. We'll talk about it. 
Okay. How many of you think this is a really weird story? You're probably familiar with it. Um, I think if I preach the book of Judges, uh, the title of the message is going to be Welcome to the Judges. And the subtitle is going to be All the Weird Stories of the Bible. I mean, you know, the ground opens up and eats people. I mean, there's tent pegs. And, I mean, there's crazy stuff in here. Anyway, okay, so talk to me about the scenes, okay? We, we have uh, the first scene in chapter 13 is about uh, Samson's parents, right? And, and the angel of the Lord and all of that. Um, so, so where do you want to mark the sort of the first section there? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. So chapter 13 kind of stands alone as an introduction. Okay. I, I like that. And then getting into chapter 14, Samson's grown up, right? And, uh, and what happens there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there, there's the you know his marriage, and then there's the riddle, and um, and then there's this really weird thing about his wife enticing him, and then they get angry, and um, again you just go weird, <laughs> and um, but the section concludes with verse 20: Samson's wife was given to his companion, who had been his friend. Right, so we could probably take all of 14 as a scene. We might be able to divide it up at verse 15. Then it came about on the fourth day, so because some time had elapsed there. Um, but um, you know, so you're looking at the the, the thens, um, the transitions there. But um, but it's all it could all be one scene because it all centers around his marriage and the events surrounding the celebration of their marriage. Right. Chapter 15, verse one. But after a while. So that we could say that's a transition, right? So what do you want to do with that one? Yeah, you could you could put another transition in sixteen one when he goes back to Gaza, because um, it's kind of a new scene. You know, it's interesting. I, I know David talked about last week how the chapter titles often the, the chapter divisions often work against us in narrative. I think with Samson they actually work pretty well. And, uh, you know, sometimes there's a question, you know, are we changing scenes here? But, but again, if, if we're really good at this with movies, you know, it's like geography change, dialogue change, location change, right? And, and so when you're reading narrative, you're looking for those natural scene breaks. So, so here's what I came up with. Um, okay, so it, it roughly follows... The the and again don't don't take this as you know Pastor Key says that so that's right okay there, there's not really a, a, a hard right and wrong here but just you're looking for those basic seed changes and again the chapters pretty much align with that now did I know you were skimming it but but did you notice the significance of fourteen six nineteen fifteen fourteen nineteen and sixteen twenty eight the repetition of the spirit of the Lord coming upon him that happens two or three times. And there's, there's two times where Samson does something that he probably should have done a whole lot more times in the book. He calls upon the Lord. Okay. And uh, so we go, okay. Uh, what do you make out of Samson? It's what they call a complicated character. A complicated character. Yeah, we, we see, especially at the end of the book, a desire for the Lord's name. We see a, a, 
a, a holy disdain for God's enemies. Those are good things. But we go, what on earth was this guy thinking? The, the guy had a, a girl problem, first of all. This is not how you picked your spouse, by the way. I've seen woman. Get her for me. Are you sure that's the right? I don't care. Get, get her for me. That's what he tells his parents, right? underhanded deceitful and guys this is what you see throughout the book of judges is is guys that have some good qualities and then they're horrible like gideon right the the whole fleece thing that's not a decision making process that's an illustration that gideon didn't believe god and yet god was gracious with him right and so you see these people that are supposed to be god fears they're supposed to be you know the leaders of israel and we go they don't fear god Now, if you're in chapter 16, just turn to chapter 17 and we read this commentary. Chapter 17, verse 6. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And what? Isn't that what Samson illustrates? Isn't that what Gideon illustrates? I mean, there's, there's one or two better judges, but most of them are train wrecks. Now go to the very end of the book. Very, very end of the book. Last verse of the book. What were we supposed to learn about the book of Judges? We read a story and we go, I don't get it. I don't want to dress up like Samson for Halloween. I don't because that's just, uh, he's not. So what's the, what's the point of the book? Go ahead and read it, Dave. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as Isn't that what the book's about? There's no leadership that fears the Lord, and so everybody does what's right in their own eyes. So as you as you break down the scene of Samson and you go, right, then you realize it fits. Samson's life fits what most of the judges demonstrate that nobody fears the Lord. Nobody's everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes because there's no solid leadership. And even that fits in the broader context of this theme. Israel is rejecting the Lord as their king. And yet, what do we see? The Lord is gracious. And why does God answer his prayer to bring the house down on the Philistines and avenge the name of Yahweh? What a, what a weird ending. Because he's showing compassion. Why doesn't, why doesn't God strike Gideon the first time he argues about the fleece and say, you should have listened the first time, I'm going to go get another guy? Because he's gracious. He's impatient. And he's patient. He endures. Just like Jonah, yes. But see, God is gracious and patient with his people. He works to show them their own inabilities and their need for mercy. And that fits in the broader context of the Old Testament showing humanity that we need a Savior. That's how you work through the contexts. Does that make sense? Um, so that, that again, that, that, that's you know a 15-minute flyover of, of Samson and how it fits into the broader context. But but that's the point. God says in in First Samuel, uh, um, where is it? First Samuel 8:13. Samuel is really one of the few good judges. He's the last judge. And the people, we want a king, we want a king. And, and Samuel says, no, you don't. And, and God says, calm down, Samuel. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me as king. That's what this is all about. It's the people rejecting God as their rightful Lord and king. Okay? Now, what I want to do just in the last 10 minutes of class or so here 
is I want to introduce you to literary genres. We're going to spend one whole class period on all of these genres. But I, I want to I just start getting you into the theme of that uh, because I know genre is probably a word that many of you are not familiar with. David Gibson illustrated this last week because narrative or story is one type of genre. Genre, genre just means the type of literature. Are we talking about the book of Proverbs? Are we talking about a letter? Are we talking about a story? Are we talking about a law code? I was talking to somebody that's reading through the Bible, a friend of mine who's reading through the Bible the first time, and he sat down and he said, I got all the way to Deuteronomy in like three weeks. I'm like, man, you've been booking it. Good job. And he says, "Um, total honest, innocent on his face, he looks at me and says, I didn't know what to do with numbers. (laughs) And I said, brother, you're in good company. Most of us struggle with numbers. Um, So it's it's because you're reading law code, you know, and genealogy and so... Okay, so literary genre. What is literary genre? Think about this. If you're playing soccer, you're not allowed to use your hands. You can't punch your opponent like you can in hockey when you don't like what he's doing. You have to use your feet or your body. In American football, you can use your hands. You can carry, throw, and kick the ball in certain situations and in certain ways. Other ways, you can't. It's a penalty. In basketball, you can't kick the ball. You can't carry the ball, but you can dribble it, but you can't dribble more than once you stop, right? In volleyball, you can use your hands to hit the ball sometimes, a certain number of times. You can kick the ball if you're playing outdoor volleyball. You can use both hands certain ways, like if you're setting. Otherwise, you have to do one or blocking. This is confusing. And then, of course, if you're playing hockey, anything goes, right? You just, you know... um, Right, you kick, you can hit, you can draw, you do whatever you want hockey. So the point is every game has certain rules, right? And when you're reading different types of literature in the Bible, you have to know the rules of the game, so to speak, of that type of Bible book, or you're going to get yourself in trouble. For example, if you take one proverb and think that is gospel truth and it's the only thing I need to know, you're going to get in trouble. Because the Proverbs are not meant to be the only sort of final word on a matter. They're general truths, but you have to read them in the context of the whole book and the whole Bible. So let's just, let's just blow through a few of these here. David Gibson talked about story last time, so you have already a, an introduction to that. And uh, he'll talk more next week in detail. Let's talk about law code. Law code, Deuteronomy, parts of Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. The point of law code is to understand how the law in Israel functions as a part of the covenant. Uh, If Roger and I went down to the Hood County Courthouse and and we got into the, the, the dusty file cabinets of the history of our great county and our great city and we started reading all the different laws that were passed through the city council and and whatnot, it would get very boring very quickly, wouldn't it? Now... We, we wouldn't be like, we wouldn't go home and Roger wouldn't say to Ruth, Oh, Ruth, I read something that changed my life today. You know, how in, you know, 1897, they enacted a, a fine if you left your horse at the saloon past 10 p.m. or something like that. I don't know. But see, that's what the book of Deuteronomy is like. You're, you're reading about rules. And we're thankful for the laws of the land because they help maintain order in society. So when you're reading law code... That's what you're reading. Now, some of those laws are not civil, right? Like, like speed limits and fines and you know things like that. They're moral laws, aren't they? 
just like in our county. There are laws about murder and stealing and theft, and they reflect morals as well as the principles that guide our city and county. But the point is you're reading law code and you have to read it within the framework of Israel's covenant with God. This is a theocracy, right? It's it's a uh, God-established government in the nation of Israel. Prophecy. Do you just love prophecy? Do you just love prophecy, Alan? I know you do. Uh, The major and minor prophets are typically where we find prophecy, although we find them in other books. Often their prophecy is highly symbolic. It requires interpretation. And remember, the prophets are what uh, Fee and Stewart called covenant reinforcement mediators. So if you're reading Isaiah and you're going, I have no idea what Isaiah is talking. Why is he even talking about this? What might you need to go read before you read the prophets? Historical context. What was going on, right? So you have the Samuel to Chronicles is is the history range there, right? And some of the latter prophets would move into books like Ezra and Nehemiah, some of the later historic books. But someone else said said it. What else would you want to read? Yeah, Yeah, the history, but what else? If they're covenant reinforcement mediators, read the covenant. You know, when they're talking about... Um, disobeying God and losing the land, you're going, why is he taking their land away? Because that was what? It's a stipulation of the covenant. And and way back in, in we didn't read it in Judges, we should have read it in Judges, but um, at the beginning of Judges, the people go in and conquest the land, and then a new ge- generation arises that forgot the law of God, and then it says, and this person didn't obey the Lord, and they didn't conquer the land, they didn't go get the land, and they didn't want to go in the land, and they... And that's what creates the scenario of the book of Judges. Okay, so you've got to know the, the, the covenants there. Uh, poetry. Poetry is not so much a, a, a type of genre as it is a type of literature, a type of writing. Um, and I confess that I hated poetry for most of my life uh, because it was more fun to read things like the DOS manual, you know, and um, some of you know what that is. And, uh, and then when I became a Christian, this is, this is a totally true story. I became a Christian. I was assaulted with this shocking reality. God wrote poetry. And he inscripturated a whole bunch of it in the Bible. And if I was going to know him and love him, guess what? I had to learn poetry. <sighs> so things like uh, books like Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, some of the prophets... It's necessary to become familiar with poetic features in order to aid understanding. One of my favorite examples is actually in the book of Proverbs. We'll just peek at this real quick, uh, and then we'll, uh, we'll wrap up here. What's personification? Anybody know what that means, personification? Yes, taking an abstract, inanimate concept, like, I don't know, wisdom, and writing about it like it's a person. Look at Proverbs chapter 8. Look at verse 4. To you, O men, I call, and my voice is to the sons of men. O naive ones, understand prudence, and O fools, understand wisdom. Listen, for I will speak noble things. And the opening of my lips will reveal right things, for my mouth will utter truth and wickedness. And you're reading this. Look at verse 12. I, wisdom... Dwell with prudence, and I find knowledge and discretion. 
Um, verse 22, the Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way before his works of old. From everlasting I was established, from the beginning. So it's wisdom talking. That's called personification. It helps us to learn about wisdom by, by giving wisdom the, the, the role of uh, like how a person would talk, right? So those are some things you have to learn. Uh, speaking of wisdom, Job, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, um, and things like Proverbs, you've you got to understand one of the rules is Proverbs are general truths, not exhaustive truths. So you have to read them in the context of the whole Bible. Uh, when, the Bible when the Bible, when Proverbs says, um, uh, uh, don't hang around angry people, I've had, pe- I've had people justify their divorce from their spouse because their spouse was angry. You know, that's what the Bible says. That's what Proverbs says, right? You know, you, you don't associate with a man given to anger. Okay. Does the Bible say anything else about anger? Does it say anything else about marriage or divorce or, right? It's not, it's not like that's the only thing in the Bible about marriage and divorce and how to deal with a sinning spouse. And then some others, the Psalms, apocalyptic literature, which would be like parts of Daniel and Revelation, epistles, letters, parables. Um, so we're going to touch on all that, but I just want to introduce the concept that different books in the Bible are different types of literature or genres, and they each have a set of rules. And knowing those rules will help you to read them intelligently. You say, where, where do I know the rules? Well, this book is going to help you. The whole back section of this book is going to help you. And you know, a lot of it, too, you just kind of know. I mean, you, you just sort of figure it out as you go. So um, you don't necessarily need to go read a whole bunch of stuff to get it. But sometimes those resources are helpful. Okay, your homework uh, for the week, for those of you keeping up, we're doing Grasping God's Word, Chapter 8. That's on literary context and genre. And your assignment is 8-2 on page 162. And you're, you're going to outline or, or section off the book of Jonah. And uh, what I want you to do is look for the connections between those so that you're, you're appreciating each one of those scenes and how they connect to one another in their context. Okay, and, and for those of you that want bonus points, connect Jonah to the broader theme of what's going on at that time in Israel's history. Really, really interesting when you start getting in the weeds there. So, uh, Well, let me pray, and then if you have any questions, uh, we can do that, but I want to respect your time for those of you that need to go. So, uh, Lord, thank you for uh, your word that is um, such an amazing book and, and uh, reveals you and your ways. Lord, give us wisdom that we will learn how to read it and interpret it properly and especially help us to be careful with context and, uh, and to just commit to reading the Bible more than probably uh, we're, we're doing so now, uh, to read larger sections and, and to read longer and um, to start to see some of these things emerge. Uh, Lord, thanks for these brothers and sisters. What a joy it is to study your word together. Uh, give us wisdom and insight. Help us to see. And uh, might we be transformed by your powerful spirit working through your word in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.